Dotnet Rocks, episode 1052, with guest Dr. Amber Strawn. Recorded Thursday, October 16th, 2014. And we're back. Hey, Richard. Hey, man. How's it going? Uh, you know, hither and yon. I was uh, popping down, checking out some sites for maybe uh, 2015 conferences, and that's always fun. Yeah, I'm really excited about this show. Um, we uh, do you want to talk about the uh, the 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 new fusion news? Uh, you know, I wrote a big piece up uh, on the .NET Rocks page about uh, Lockheed Martin's pseudo announcement. Mm-hmm. I guess they made an announcement, but it doesn't really say anything. It doesn't really say much. Yeah, yeah. It's it. Lots of folks were asking, like, "Is this a fourth fusion show?" And I'm like, no, it's really not. But that's fine. You know, I'll I'll, I'll I've linked it. I will make it available for folks to read. It's it's a bunch of paragraphs just summarizing some thoughts around it. But uh, yeah. Okay. Let, let's let that go because this is going to keep ha- happening, right? Everybody's got That's something right. cool to say about fusion, just not actually moving the ball forward. Right. Okay. Well, let's start with uh, Better No Framework. Awesome. All right, buddy. What do you got? All right. Well, so you you talked about the NUC, the Intel NUC, this little. Uh, platform of uh, I very love my sm- NUC. Yeah, very small computers. I have one too, and I love it. Mm-hmm. And uh, about four inches uh, square, and about an inch and a half, maybe two inches tall. Yep. And uh, it's an i5, and it's pretty loaded up. I got it. Well, anyway, I went and looked to see if anybody's put one of these in their car. Sure, because it's totally solid state. It should be really good in there. Right. And I checked it. It needs. I think it needs fourteen volts. Ah, and it's a 12-volt system. Yeah, it is, it is a nuisance. But that doesn't stop people from putting them in their car. If you go to tinyurl.com slash nucincar, that's N-U-C-N-car. It's almost a palindrome, isn't it? <laughs> Get that way, yeah. <laughs> car in nuck? No. <laughs> I don't know. You can, might make that work. But anyway, so this uh, guy did it. And um, of... Uh, of course, he had to use a, a power inverter, right? Like, you know, so he's taking his twelve volts, converting it to to one hundred twenty AC, and then converting it. Back. It's really kind of silly if you think that about sucks, it. But... but what he's got is he's got a leap motion thing, you know, the leap detector. Oh yeah, the uh, the the um, yeah, can ma- track fingers. Yep, and uh, he's got a little screen in there, right above his on his dashboard. And he basically, you know, to play his songs, he can just, like, wave his hand and it goes to the next song. Nice. It's kind of cool. I thought it was neat. And, of course, then all of the Android people saying, PCs are old. You should use an Android. Put your phone in there. You know? But uh, well, they got a point, right? You could cut it down even more, consume less power and so forth. But you can't argue the versatility of having the Windows stack available. Yeah, that's right. And you can do stuff like this. Like, I can wave at my car and things happen. It's yeah. just kind of fun. So anyway, I thought you'd enjoy that little blog post. That's cool, man. Nice yeah. find. All right. Who's talking to us today, Richard? So I figured, uh, considering our guest, I would go back into some of the space shows. We haven't done one in a while. That's right. And this is one, uh, this is a comment from show 770. So that's May of 2012. Oh, boy. Uh, one of the er- very early... Uh, geek outs actually because we were just that that was when we were still doing a bunch of different space shows because people keep asking us for other topics and we right. got into the international space station and uh spacex and things like that 
This particular comment amused me. It's from Dr. Random, whose name is actually Casey, but his uh, pseudonym is Dr. Random. He says, Carl mentioned the super scariness of an asteroid hitting the Earth. Well, we do have an asteroid called Apophis on the way to the Earth. It's going to do a flyby on April 13th of 2029. Yep. Passing no closer than 29,470 kilometers, which is really close. That's really close. Probably going to be visible, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely will be visible. Uh, unfortunately, when it makes its close pass by in 2029, it's directly over the Atlantic. So it's only a question of how many people are going to be able to see it. Yeah. And one of the concerns is that that is closer than some geostationary satellites. Although I went and looked at the JPL data on this. That's, that's the way to go. Go to the experts, right? Mm-hmm. So the Jet Propulsion Laboratory has been doing lots of tracking around this thing. And and one of the big points they made is that it's about 40 degrees off the inclined plane of the equator, which means it's going to go nowhere near geostationary satellites. That's fine. But the scary part was when they initially did the calculation on this thing, they said, hey, you know, it might go through this little gravitational keyhole that might tweak it so that exactly seven years later, in 2036, it could impact the Earth. And that caused some fuss. Now, uh, that was back in 2004. They did those initial calculations. Might even say it caused a little kerfuffle. A little, it could be kerfuffle. Yes. Yeah. I think it was kerfuffle worthy. Uh, needs to say folks have continued to pay attention to this and done additional measurements. And in 2012 and 2013, JPL got a, some additional data to show. Yeah. Okay. That's not going to happen. It's going to make the close pass in 2029, but it's not going to hit the keyhole. It's not, we're not going to come anywhere near the earth in 2036. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, that excitement is over, but, uh, really interesting to think that this is about a 325 meter satellite. It's a good size, big enough. Uh, They say it's a once every every 80,000 year type event for it to actually collide with the planet. So the chances of this one are relatively low, but yeah, you're right. They're going to get some interesting footage. And it's funny that we talk about this now, uh, when we're recording this show, Mm -hmm. we've got, uh, Comet coming very close to Mars to the point where they've been positioning the orbiters uh, around Mars so that it won't go through the corona tail of the comet and uh, be able to get some good fo- and still be able to get some good footage of a really close pass mm-hmm. by Mars uh, of a comet. Yeah, that's awesome, huh? It is exciting times, and at least it's putting attention to the fact that we need to do a better job around. Uh, watching for extinction class event objects or any decent size object coming to the planet and actually having a plan to deal with it. You know, we talked a little bit about this in the asteroid mining show. Right. But the re, you know, one of the reasons to develop that technology is so that we have better equipment and more skill around protecting our planet. This uh, asteroid was the one that they thought could collide with the earth until they did some more math and found That's out right. that it really wasn't going to be yeah that gravitational keyhole risk at 2029 was going to give it the right deflection so to come back around in seven years yeah but it's not passing and the keyhole's real like there was a it was a very narrow window that it could pass through that would have this effect but mm. the chances of it it turned out it was not going to go through that keyhole after yeah all. right but i remember the hype it was the, exciting and the fear yeah yeah well and it's you know it's one of those uh, it, it grabs us pretty deep down, right? We've made anything we've made movies around where Gordon Freeman gives up. <laughs> that's stuff we should worry about. Yeah, that's right. Very good. Excellent. So, Casey, thanks so much for your comment. Dotnet Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a Dotnet Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at dotnetrocks.com or in any of our mobile apps. We've got them for iOS, Android, Windows Phone 7 and 8, and Windows 8. And that brings us to our esteemed guest, Dr. Amber Strawn. Amber is an astrophysicist at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center in Greenbelt, Maryland, and is on the project science team for the James Webb Space Telescope. 
Amber's research focuses on interacting and star-forming galaxies, where she uses telescopes like Hubble to study how galaxies change over time. Amber got her start in astronomy from growing up in rural Arkansas, where the sky was always and still is beautifully dark. Welcome to our show, Amber. Thanks. It's great to be here. Great to have you here. And uh, tell tell me the story of how you met Richard and how you figured out how to get on our crazy show. <laughs> yeah, well, that all kind of started with um, some interactions on our James Webb Space Telescope uh, social media uh, activities that we have going on here at Goddard. Um, so our social media lead here, um, I think, had some some online sort of interactions via Twitter um, or Facebook, and and so it it happened that. You guys said, "Hey, James Webb Space Telescope is cool, and we should we should talk about it." So I'm I'm really happy to do that. We did a show back in June of 2013 on space telescopes in general, where I just sort of we talked about the fact that there was I don't know three dozen operating space telescopes right, right. now, and certainly uh, JWST being the biggest upcoming space telescope, and what they call the you know the uh, inheritor or the the one that's going to take over for Hubble. Uh, it was part of the conversation, and uh, there was some crossover there. Some folks right. uh, over at Goddard saw it, and we pinged back and forth, and here we are. So I guess the first question from a pure layman's perspective is, um, the Hubble seems to be working just great from all the images that we've seen, and uh, we know it had some uh, a rocky start, you know, and it had to be corrected, but why? Uh, why, why do we need to replace it? Well, believe it or not, Hubble has now been in orbit for almost 25 years. So next year, in 2015, uh, the world will celebrate a quarter century of Hubble being in orbit. So wow. that that in itself is kind of remarkable. It's been there a long time. Uh, but yeah, like you said, it was it was serviced last time in 2009, and it's it's basically you know a brand new telescope after that servicing mission. So it's doing great. So we're absolutely going to keep using Hubble as long as it lasts, and we expect it to last out till you know 2020 or so. And it's never um, going to be serviced again because it needs to be serviced by space shuttles, and we don't have those anymore. That's right. Hmm. That's right. Although, didn't they put an attachment onto it? So, in theory, if we made a new spacecraft, there'd be a way to connect to it? So, I mean, that's that's a possibility. Um, that's not That kind of scenario is not currently in NASA's plans. And, um, you know, even, even if we, we did happen to upgrade Hubble again, um, you know, there's still limitations on what it can do. Uh, so it orbits the Earth, obviously, pretty close. Um, and if we put a telescope in deep space, there are different things we can do with it. And so that's, that's one of the big differences, actually, between Hubble and Webb, is that uh, JVST will be about a million miles from Earth out in deep space. And so we can just do different things with a telescope like that. Yeah, the part that always seems to wear out on the Hubble are the moment wheels, because it's constantly having to point. It's going around the planet so fast to try and yeah. look at one point in the sky. It's perpetually turning and using those gyroscopes to point itself at, at the right point, and that's what that's what breaks. Yeah, I mean there 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 are lots of moving parts on Hubble. Um, the instruments obviously don't last forever, and so when we've been back to Hubble, when the astronauts have been back to Hubble to service it um, five times, you know, since it was launched. Uh, they they do all sorts of upgrades to it, mm. um, but again, currently we don't have that capability. Um, and even if we did, you know, we need to to think bigger, and that's what Web is all about. Yeah, you know, so the web, web is... will be about a hundred times more powerful than Hubble, so it's going to yeah. be remarkable what what it will be able to discover. So that's really what it's all. It's not that Hubble is you know breaking down or anything and needs to be replaced. It's that uh, we want bigger telescopes in space. 
Yeah, that, that's absolutely true. I mean, um, and Webb will be the biggest telescope by far that we've ever put into space. And we really are building it, you know, to answer some of our biggest questions in astronomy. And really, I think some of the biggest questions uh, that, we, that we have as humans, you know, these big questions go back to, you know, the big, big questions like, where do we come from and how do we get here and are we alone? You know, those, those big, deep human questions that these telescopes are able to sort of provide some insight into. Yeah, we didn't really think of it when we were kids, but a telescope is really a time machine, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, that's one, of, and that's one of the really cool things about it is, you know, just based on this very fundamental sort of principle that light has a finite travel speed, that by looking at things that are distant in the universe, we're seeing them as they were in the past. So these powerful telescopes really do serve as, as a time machine to allow us to see the universe as it was long, long ago, which is really cool. And even, you know, as you look up into the stars, if you're looking at Orion's belt, for example... How how long ago was that light emitted from those stars? Yeah, so so it it depends on you know how how far away um, the the objects are. Um, but using telescopes like Hubble um, and even in tel- some telescopes on the ground as well, you know we can we can push back and and the more distant things. Um, uh, the light's been traveling for longer. So so for the most distant galaxies that we can see with Hubble, for example, that light's been traveling for almost 13 billion years. So we're literally seeing the universe as it was, you know, in its infancy. Um, one of the, the limitations, though, that we have with Hubble and where we sort of pushed it to its limits are um, the fact that, that Hubble sees the universe in optical light mm-hmm. and uh, Webb will see the universe in infrared light. And we really need infrared capability to see the first galaxies, the first stars and galaxies that were born after the Big Bang. But yeah, those, those first objects, they existed, you know, uh, you know less than a billion years after, after the um, universe began in the Big Bang. So how far back to the Big Bang will you be able to see? So we'll basically be able, to, we think right now that we'll be able to, we hope we'll be able to see some of the, the first stars and galaxies. And so that's something like, um, again, we think about uh, half a billion uh, years after the Big Bang. But the, the big sort of issue um, <laughs> with this is that we don't know what's out there. We right. haven't seen it yet. You know, so observational astronomers like myself work in close concert with theoretical astronomers who, um, you know, use math and physics to sort of model what they think happened in the early universe. And so right now, our best theoretical models tell us that um, we think we should be able to see those first stars and galaxies, but there's still a lot of uncertainty in those models. And so, you know, that's why we have to build telescopes so we can can actually observe what's going on in the early universe. Are there actually scientists that have opposing ideas about what happened back that early like some have one one guy has one theory another lady has another theory and then you know so when you actually put up the telescope and see there's going to be somebody who's crying in their beer and there's going to be somebody (laughs) saying see i told you so (laughs) well astronomers do drink a lot of beer um, but (laughs) including myself um but no there there are that definitely happens i mean there are different sort of schools of thought as far as um what happened in the early universe and um mm. i mean most of them are sort of they're at least on the same kind of uh, path you know there's some sort of broad principles that apply to to most of the um the the theories that are out there but there are definitely you know individual differences between the different theories um and so 
so that's why it's you know that's why it's important to to have observational science as well as mm. theoretical. I mean, both 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 sides are really important, and uh, we work a lot you know with each other. Um, but but in the end, you need observations to to back up the theories. So why go into the infrared spectrum? What's there? What's the interest there? So there are there are several different reasons why infrared light um, is important. And when you're talking about observing galaxies in the early universe of so very very distant galaxies, um, what happens is because the the universe is expanding. Um, you've probably heard this idea of redshift. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, so galaxies, um, very distant galaxies at very high redshift, their light has literally been shifted by the expansion of the universe out of the visible range and into the infrared range. Wow, okay. Right? The wavelength of infrared light is longer than the wavelength of optical light, so it's redder, it's infrared. And um, so these most distant galaxies have shifted all the way out of the optical into the infrared part of the spectrum. So we need infrared detectors in order to see them. And we've had infrared telescopes before. I think Spitzer's still running, right? Yeah, yeah. So Spitzer is a great telescope. Um, it is also in um, low Earth orbit, like Hubble. Uh, so it had to have... Um, uh, cryogens, right? So it had to be cooled. So the thing about um, telescopes that are in low Earth orbit is if they're going to be infrared telescopes, they have to be cooled if they're right. close to Earth, right? The Earth is big and hot. And, and infrared light, you can kind of think of it like heat radiation, right? So you don't want your telescope itself to be warm. Otherwise, the detectors are just seeing the glow of the telescope. So what you so get is with a visible spectrum, you could actually be missing things that the infrared spectrum can show you. So it yes. will cloud your view, so to speak. Absolutely. So, um, I mean, again, kind of using the, first, the, the distant galaxies as an example, um, those galaxies, you only can see them in infrared light. Uh, right. so, so we really do need infrared uh, telescopes in order to see them. But when you put them in low Earth orbit, the Earth is hot. The and Earth so is hot, so, the cool so that makes the telescope. the telescope hot, right? Mm. And you don't want a hot telescope if it's an infrared telescope. Right. Uh, so, so, so we're putting Webb out uh, in deep space a million miles from Earth so that it's, I mean, it's cold in deep space, right? So uh, it's a good place to put an infrared telescope. And this is the Lagrange Point 2? Yes, that's right. The, the whole idea of Lagrange Point said to me is, is staggering. You've got to talk about this. Yeah, so it's it's just a really really cool mathematical thing that happens uh, when you have a kind of a complicated system of massive bodies like the Earth and the Sun, um, and and the the astronomer or sorry the mathematician Lagrange, um, you know, back a long time ago figured out that there should be these sort of gravitationally stable points in the overall gravity system of the Earth and the Sun, and so um, that's what the Lagrange points are. And so you, uh, you go out to L2 because it's cold there, which means you need you don't need to cool your telescope quite as much. But how much work is it to keep it there? Yeah, so so to get to actually to get to L2 is not in NASA speak is not that hard. Um right, it takes rocket fuel obviously um to right. launch it out to that part um of space, but we have NASA has several telescopes and ESA does as well out in that part of space. So getting there isn't the the huge technology um challenge. But yeah, once you get there, we are going to have to use some of our fuel on JWST to sort of keep it in an orbit around the L2 point. Uh, so the L2 point is actually not a completely stable point, um, and so we have to, to um, 
to use fuel in order to sort of keep it uh, in that part of space. So is there also something to L2 about being in the shadow of the Earth that cools it? Not really. I mean, at, at that point, so it's so far away that um, we won't really be in the Earth's shadow. Okay. So the Earth is directly between L2 and the Sun. Is that right? So, so, there, so there are several Lagrange points in the overall Earth-Sun system. So L1 is between the Sun and the Earth, and we have NASA has satellites there, too, satellites that observe the Sun. Mm-hmm. Um, but L2 is out beyond the orbit of the Earth. So think of the Sun and then the Earth, and then you got the Moon, and then L2 is way out past the Moon. Right. L2 is about four times further away than the Moon. So the telescope and the L2 point, of course, orbits the Sun along with the Earth, essentially. Okay. You can kind of think of it that way. All right. I, I was looking at the documentation for, I mean, they've been working on variations of this telescope from even before Hubble was launched. And there was one design where they were talking about putting this the, the satellite three AAUs out from the, Earth, from the sun, mm-hmm. which is much further, I think. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, the the thought of building the next telescope, of course, um, w- people were already thinking about that even before the launch of Hubble. Um, but yeah, so it's, and it's kind of interesting how these, these telescopes are selected, um, right. but a bunch of different you know, engineering companies put in their ideas, their bids for how to build these telescopes, and the current design was the one that, that sort of won out. There's, is there a, a shield for the sun to keep it cool? I'm, I'm totally fascinated by this heat problem. Yeah, so so even though L2 is a very, very cold part of space, um, we're still getting constant radiation from the sun. So yeah, the telescope itself has a massive sun shield about the size of a basketball court that is five layers thick. Um, oh. And the actual material that makes up this sun shield is incredibly thin. It's a very thin, it's called kapton. It's like a plasticky material uh, with a reflective coating. And so it's basically like a huge beach umbrella for the telescope. <laughs> Nice. Um, and yeah, it's it, the the technology, the engineering behind this telescope is absolutely incredible. It's awesome. you know I'm a scientist. I'm I'm very excited to get the data back from the thing, uh, but the engineering behind it just completely blows my mind. <laughs> but it's, so is the advantage of this design that you don't have to rely on liquid helium coolants near as much, so the theory of the telescope will last longer. Yeah, yeah. So that's definitely part of it. I mean, the telescope has to be cold uh, because it's infrared. So we put it out in deep space, and we don't have to take um, as much cryogen. So we do have we have four science instruments total for like four cameras on the telescope. Yeah. Um, one of those does actually have um, a refrigerant cryo cooling system. So there's one of our three instruments that does have to be cooled um, to even colder temperatures. But but for the most part, the spacecraft itself um, is what we call passively cooled out in that part of space, which means it's just so cold out there, it just gets cold. So at least a couple of, I mean, they say they're guaranteeing five years, they're hoping for 10 years. Hubble's been going for 25 years. Mm-hmm. Like you would think if, as long as it's not dependent on coolant, you might lose one, the instrument, what is it? The, it's a mid-infrared instrument that's dependent mm-hmm. on helium. But right. the camera and the spectrograph could last much longer. Yeah, absolutely. It, the the cameras could all last longer. Our our life limiting factor um, is fuel, and so so we do need fuel for for station keeping. Kind of what I was talking about before about kind of keeping it in that orbit out there. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so once we run out of fuel, you know, we won't be able any longer to to point the telescope, and and so. Um, but again. We expect that that will last, you know, 10, 11, maybe longer than that, longer years. 
The pointing part's an interesting problem because just because you're in a halo uh, orbit in L2 doesn't mean you're always pointing exactly where you want to go. Are you still using gyroscopes to do the fine pointing? Uh, yeah, so we we still have you know mechanical systems uh, on the on the telescope that will be used for pointing, um, and the way of course the the telescope along with the Earth of course sweeps out a whole orbit over the course of a year. So um, over the course of a year, we'll be able to point uh, most parts of the sky. There's a little bit that we can't point to, but most of the sky will be covered. So um, it'll be dependent on the time of year, of course, because we can never point back towards the sun. Right. Um, but, you know, there, there are really smart people working on uh, how to schedule observations with Webb. <laughs> and it, it looks like there's a really cool software problem in here because this is a, a multi-piece uh, telescope, right, with 18 different mirrors uh, that, uh, that come in three different flavors, each with actuators, like to actually perfectly yeah. focus anything. That's mm -hmm. an interesting equation. Yeah, so the the mirror, just the mirror technology on this telescope is is astounding. Yeah, so there are um, eighteen mirror segments in the primary uh, mirror, and that me that mirror is about six and a half meters across. And each of those eighteen segments um, has a, an individual hexapod actuator on the back, which gives each mirror essentially seven degrees of freedom. Um, and so all the, the individual mirror segments are controllable. So yeah, every um, kind of couple of weeks, you know, the, the software people, the data people will, um, you know, take an image and sort of shape up the mirror essentially uh, to make sure it has the, the perfect prescription. Normally when you see these hexagonal mirrors with the actuators, it's down on the planet and they're using those adjustments in the mirrors to deal with atmospheric distortion. Oh yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And now you've got a, a, the same kind of telescope now up in space. There's mm -hmm. no atmosphere. What do you do with the actuators? Yeah, so so over over time, um, the mirrors just I mean, the precision that we need with these mirrors is incredibly incredibly fine, right? It, they they have to be incredibly precise in order to get the the kind of high resolution imaging that we're wanting. Um so so really what we're using the actuators for is to to every couple of weeks sort of shape up the mirrors, you know, just to make sure the overall sort of um waveguide of the mirrors essentially is perfect. Right. Yeah. So is there like a reference image they will shoot yeah. to make sure they've mm -hmm. got it adjusted correctly? Yep, yep. So, you know, you could focus on a, you know, a bright star and then right. and then look at the the sort of overall f image that all of those mirrors combined makes and then, you know, perfect it that way. How how does NASA plan to service the telescope if it needs uh, servicing? Uh, there is no plan for servicing. So L2 Whoa. is currently a whole lot further um, than we've ever been with humans, for sure. Um, and also, you know, robotically. So the telescope is not designed to be serviced, which is, you know, maybe a little bit scary to people, yeah. <laughs> right? Uh, we, we always think of Hubble and, oh, we've been back to hu service Hubble five times. But, you know, Hubble is really an exception to the rule, right? When we watch satellites... Uh, that we depend on every day, you know, GPS satellites and our cell phones. And, you know, we, we build those to work like they're supposed to once they get to space. Um, we don't build those to be serviceable. So almost every telescope besides Hubble, every satellite besides Hubble, um, is, you know, not designed to be serviceable. So we're not designing this one to be serviceable. Although it's got to be tempting if the only, if the mechanisms keep working and we're just running out of fuel. Mm -hmm. The idea that you could send a small spacecraft up and just refuel the tel telescope and get another 20 years out of it. 
Right. So people are definitely thinking about that. Um, so, uh, you know, <laughs> we have a robotic refueling um, sort of uh, program at Goddard, uh, and, and people think about it. Uh, yep. It's not 100% out of the question, but at the current time, we're really um, not planning on it. So I remember when the uh, Hubble Space Telescope launched and then they announced that there was a problem with it, right? And uh, David Letterman's top 10 list that night was really funny. It was top 10 Hubble Space Telescope excuses. Oh, And the yeah. number one was hilarious. It was bum with squeegee smeared lens at stoplight. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's terrible. <laughs> totally, total New York joke there. But, but Richard, you know what time it is now? Oh, it must be that happy time again. You got it. It's time for me to go pay a visit to the dumbest person in the room user group. <laughs> That's what I am right here. Oh, no. oh my God. So amazing. So it's actually time to give away a DevExpress Universal subscription to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But before I tell you who won today, become a UI superhero with DevExpress UI controls and libraries and deliver elegant .NET solutions that address customer needs today and leverage your existing knowledge to build next-generation, touch-enabled solutions for tomorrow. Whether it's an Office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best without limits or compromise. Learn more and download your free 30-day trial at devexpress.com superhero. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Jonas Samuelson. Congratulations, Jonas. Golf clap for you, sir. Jonas just won the DevExpress uh, D-Experience subscription. That's a whole pile of awesome from DevExpress. If you don't know what we're doing here, go to .netrocks.com. Click on the big Get Free Stuff button. Ask, answer a few questions and join the fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. And every show, we give away great sponsor stuff. And every December, we give away... $5,000 worth of technology to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. And it's coming up. It's coming up. And Amber, I know you're not used to this, but we like to ask our guests on the show, if you had $5,000 to spend on technology today, and this ought to be good, Richard, mm. <laughs> what would you buy? <laughs> wow. That's a, yeah, that's a good question. So I guess, hmm. So from a personal standpoint, um, outside my my NASA life, which is awesome. I have a fantastic job, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, but I'm a pilot. I'm a, I'm a private pilot. And so I really want one of these really cool, uh, standalone, uh, portable GPS units that like shows aviation weather and stuff like that. Yeah. Ooh. And they're expensive. Uh, the so I, that's probably what I get a really cool, uh, GPS unit. And you can get ADSB <laughs> now, uh, for iPad. Do what? You can get ADSB now for iPad as well. Yeah, yeah. So, so there's that too. But I, uh, we don't have a wireless subscription on our iPad or a um, what uh, like a a cellular, you know? Right. Uh, so, so I would I would like a, a standalone GPS. I mean, our um, our airplane has a you know has GPS and the avionics, but you know. It would be it would be cool to have a have something in case you know the GPS stops working. <laughs> Absolutely, you always want something backup. What and what do you fly? Uh, I fly a Cessna one eighty two. Oh, nice! Um, which cool. is the big yeah. motor. It's wow. a fun little airplane, four seater, single engine. Yeah. yeah, a lot of fun. I don't fly, but I've I've flown with <laughs> a pilot in a Cessna, mm -hmm. and also a Piper. I had a couple pilot friends. Yep, mm -hmm. it's a lot of fun. I really love it. <laughs> so. 
what scientific instruments are on the James Webb Space Telescope? So we have four instruments. Um, we have the near-infrared camera, uh, near-cam, which is going to be our primary um, imager. So that's the, the instrument that's going to send back all of the, the beautiful pictures um, mm-hmm. that people expect to see. Uh, we have a near-infrared spectrograph, near-spec, which will send back spectra of all these awesome galaxies that we want to study. What, what does that mean exactly, spectra? Oh, spectra, yes. Um, so I'm, I'm using astronomer speak, sorry. <laughs> mm-hmm. So a spe- like a spectrum for a galaxy, for example, or of a planet, is sort of like its, um, its special fingerprint, right? So it's, it's what um, elements happen to be in that galaxy that you can right. see. Um, so yeah, so images, uh, everybody's familiar with the beautiful images from Hubble. Um, and we can really learn a lot from imaging alone. But when we take spectra of objects in the universe, that's when like the real information comes in. That's where we can really learn a lot. So you can find out if there's oxygen in the atmosphere and that kind of stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. So this becomes, of course, really important for um, exoplanet studies. Yeah. Planet hunting. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. So it's, I mean, I really think Webb is definitely the next sort of big step forward in our understanding of exoplanets. And, you know, the, the whole field of exoplanets, so I study galaxies. So exoplanets are kind of far from my personal field of mm-hmm. research. Bit small. They're, <laughs> they're a bit small. Um, and, you know, I've always, I've always just loved sort of the... I don't know, the big questions, you know, sure. about, and galaxies are sort of, are that, you know, I'm interested in how galaxies and the universe as a whole kind of changes over time. So galaxies are my, you know, are my specialty, but exoplanets, I mean, this is cool stuff, right? And it's, it's, it's new, you know, the, the field of exoplanet sciences is, is brand new. And, you know, I, I think it's so cool that we, we now know, we didn't know 10 years ago, we didn't know five years ago, that there are likely more planets in the universe than there are stars. Yeah. You know, that's incredible. Uh, we now know that there are tens of billions of planets in our galaxy alone that are likely capable of supporting life. Okay, so you got the infrared camera, the infrared spectrograph, and you said there were four instruments. Yep, so that's two. Uh, number three is the mid-infrared instrument, MIRI, and that's the one that um, has to be cooled. It has a refrigerant um, cryocooler on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we have what's called the fine guidance sensor um, and the near-infrared imager and slitless spectrograph, which is a, a big mouthful, but it's basically another, um, another type of spectrograph. Also and a Canadian the, instrument. <laughs> and what did you say? It's also a Canadian instrument, too. Yes, that's true. Yep, yep. Uh, those are our Canadian instruments. Yeah, so Webb is a partner, um, is partner between NASA, the European Space Agency, and the Canadian Space Agency. And why would you need a near-infrared camera uh, and a mid-infrared instrument? The, the, this, is there any overlap there? There is, there is a little bit of overlap, but um, the, the big difference there is that once you get into, out into the mid-infrared part of the spectrum, mm-hmm. um, then technologically you need, uh, you need it to be cooled. And that's hard. Um, it's hard to, to cryogenically cool anything. Um, <laughs> and once you, you're talking about putting something in deep space, it's hard. So we, we are you know, restricting that technology to, to one, one instrument. But this is about getting into different frequency ranges of infrared. Right, That's yeah. right, yeah. The mid-infrared part of the spectrum, which is longer wavelengths. So then the near-infrared is, uh, is probably closer to the visible spectrum. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, I got it. And the fine yeah. guidance sensor, you said, was for, for which? 
So the fine guidance sensor is sort of a part of, of one of the, the instruments that basically allows um, web to point very, very precisely. Okay, so this is, this is the, um, the instrument that will allow it to, um, to really focus in on the images. All right, so is there any object that's too close for the web to really look at? Well, since so there there are objects that are too close and or too hot, right? That's usually those two things usually go together. Um, so if you point at something with an infrared telescope that is too hot, you're going to you know burn out the detectors. So obviously wow. we would never point to the sun. Um, we can't ever point back towards Earth, you know, towards the moon. So we can't look at the moon. Huh. Um, we can look at, at objects that are, are further out. Uh, so we will be able, for example, to look at Mars. Hmm. Um, and we'll be able to look at the outer solar system. That's definitely part of our sort of science plan for the telescope. You'll be, look, be able to look at Mars in terms of getting close onto the surface? Uh, so we'll, we'll be taking mainly sort of atmospheric studies okay. of, of Mars. Yeah. That makes and, sense. And um, your the listeners can obviously you can go online and find out all the details of all the cool science we'll be able to do in the um, in the oh, in the solar sure. system. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite thoughts here is under, infrared's apparently really good at penetrating dust. I was wondering if we'd be able to get an image of a planet being formed. Yeah, mm. so that's one of that is one of the key uh, sort of science goals of Webb is that you know in addition to the the cool kind of trick of infrared light to to enable us to see very very distant galaxies is that infrared light can pierce through dust whereas optical light you know you can't you can't see through dust with optical light infrared light we can pierce through dust and we know that sort of the cocoons that planet systems are born in are inside these these big clouds of dust, stars and planets are formed in these areas. So yeah, we'll definitely be able to, to learn more about planetary, protoplanetary systems and star formation with Webb. Well, and yeah, the, it's interesting that there's these four instruments and they all seem to have slightly different capabilities, but they are, they are focused on infrared. I, I think people just presume that it would be optical and so we'd get the same mm-hmm. pictures we get from Hubble. Like how is it going to replace Hubble for optical imagery? So it won't replace Hubble for optical imagery. Uh, when we say Webb is a successor to Hubble, we really mean that in the scientific sense, right? Mm. So Hubble, with with Hubble, we've we've learned. I mean, we really have learned so much about the universe with Hubble. It's it's completely changed in fundamental ways the way we understand the universe. Uh, but again, in a lot of ways, we've pushed Hubble to its limits, and there are things that Hubble just can't do. Um, so. In that sense, all of the things we've learned, we've come up with even more questions, which is what science does, right? Yeah, that's uh, the rule. So we're building this telescope really primarily to answer the biggest science questions of our day, most of which have, you know, have come from the results that we've we found with Hubble. Mm-hmm. So there's only one big set of mirrors and the reflector and so forth and four different instruments. How do you, how does light get to each instrument? Yeah, so, so... If you if you look at a picture of the telescope, first of all, it's it's sort of a, a strange looking telescope, right? People think of telescopes and they think of a tube with a mirror. It looks right. more like and, a starship, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or a, a giant space laser. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so if if you look at an image of the telescope, you know you see the big primary mirror. So that obviously is what collects the light. Then that light is focused onto the secondary mirror, which is the one that sits out on a strut. And then the light is directed back through the middle of the big primary mirror, and the instruments are all behind the big primary mirror on the back. 
Okay, so once the, the light, the signal goes um, back through sort of the, to the instrument package behind the primary mirror, then it, it, there's a whole other system of lenses and mirrors that directs the light um, to whatever instrument you're going to use. So, um, so, yeah, you only use one instrument at once, and then um, based on, you know, which instrument you've chosen to use, that's where the light's directed. So there are, like, pick-off mirrors and all kinds of, of other uh, technology built into the telescope that allows you to observe with whatever instrument you've chosen. So what do you think of the middle of a galaxy as a whole? Dum dum. Come on now, that's pretty good. <laughs> Is that a question for me? Yeah. <laughs> just a the horrible middle of our heat. galaxy? Just a horrible get black hole joke. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I love black holes. What are you talking about? Yeah. So so the, how how was it discovered that most galaxies, or I guess the theory is that most galaxies have a black hole at the center. Mm -hmm. is, is that still the current thinking? Yeah, yeah. We, we're we pretty sure now that all, at least all massive galaxies, big galaxies, um, have black holes at their centers. Now, some of them, so they're different. They're, um, some, ga some galaxies, black holes are very active, so they're sort of actively accreting material. Um, and those galaxies are, uh, there's lots of different ways we can kind of observe that that's happening. Um, but those are really interesting galaxies. We call those, uh, those active galactic nuclei, AGN, um, or active black holes. But a lot of galaxies have black holes at their centers that are sort of dormant. They're hanging out there. They're huge, supermassive, like the black hole at the center of the Milky Way. Mm. Huge black hole, but it's not really doing anything. Um, so it's an inactive black hole. So it's not vacuuming up all the stars around it? It is not vacuuming up all the stars. No, so, it's, you know, essentially people always think of black holes as huge cosmic vacuum cleaners, but they're, they're really not usually. Now, that's weird. I've never heard of a black hole in any other way. What does it do if it's not doing anything? Well, so a it's black just hole a big, heavy is thing? just... You know, the, the stars and things around it, so obviously our, our Milky Way galaxy, if you look at a picture of any spiral galaxy, it's, it's rotating, right? It's mm -hmm. spinning. Mm -hmm. um, and you can, I mean, you can see that from the spiral arms. You know, you look at it and you say, yeah, that galaxy looks like it's spinning. Um, but uh, so we know that there are stars orbiting our black hole, right? Mm -hmm. But the stars themselves don't know that it's a black hole. They just know it's a big, massive object in the center right. of the galaxy. Um, so sometimes when like two galaxies get close enough together that they gravitationally interact or they completely collide, um, then, then crazy things start happening with the black holes at the middle, right? Because then you have all this weird dynamics that are happening in the galaxies and gas gets funneled into the center. Um, and then when, when, it, when an, an action like that occurs, then the black hole can start feeding um, and accreting material. You know, I'd love to talk a little more about galaxies because it seems like the Milky Way is a very ordinary galaxy, like not very big, not very exciting. There's some weird galaxies out there. Yeah, definitely. So the, gal the, the Milky Way and our sun, for that matter, are just sort of an ordinary run-of-the-mill spiral galaxy. Um, and our sun is an ordinary run-of-the-mill sort of medium-sized uh, star, uh, which is really good for us, <laughs> yeah. right? If we lived in a galaxy with a, a crazy black hole at the center, you know, we'll, well, we probably we, we wouldn't live in that type of a galaxy. Well, not for very um, long. But, uh, but there, yeah, the the. The typical sort of galaxy you think of when you think of a galaxy is a, is a spiral galaxy, right? Because that's right. Our, our home galaxy, the Milky Way. Um, and there are a lot of spiral galaxies in the nearby universe. Uh, there are also sort of um, 
big balls of stars, essentially elliptical galaxies. So that's another common type of galaxy. Um, but when like you Fomax start looking a. into the, the distant universe, um, you see a really different picture. And so it's really interesting to, to look back into the distant universe and see what galaxies looked like then. So many times they're smaller and they're sort of clumpy. They don't have as much structure, organized structure. And so this question of how we go from the early galaxies to the present day, very organized galaxies, that's a big question in astronomy that we still don't have all the answers to. Isn't, our, isn't there a prediction that our, our galaxy, our Milky Way galaxy, will uh, collide with the Andromeda galaxy in about 4 billion years or trillion years or something like that? Yep, yep. So that's expected to happen in, yeah, in several billion years. Um, but by that time, the sun will have already sort of expanded uh, mm. to yeah, be we'll a, be a red giant in the earth. Then, will be the earth will be incinerated. So. <laughs> I don't think there's anything I have to worry about then. I don't have to pack. <laughs> <laughs> Not anytime soon. <laughs> <laughs> well, just because two galaxies are colliding doesn't automatically mean, you know, it's, it's not like they're trucks. Right. That's true. In fact, when, when galaxies collide, the individual stars don't even collide, right? There's right, so right. much empty space in galaxies that, um, you know, what, what's going on dynamically is with the gas in the galaxy and right. sort of what exists in between the, the individual stars. And you get to see these collisions happen, right, with a, with a space telescope? Yeah, absolutely. So one of, I mean, for me, one of the most striking, beautiful images that Hubble has taken are some of these interacting galaxies, like the the antennae galaxies. Or, oh yeah. Uh, so those, yeah, and they're they're beautiful, um, and they're it's really interesting to study those galaxies as well. But when you get into the weird ones, I'm thinking of stuff like Hercules A and Cygnus A, like mm-hmm. they're really big and it doesn't look like very life friendly. Like that's a lot of energy being thrown around. Oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So so in the sense that, our, you know, you said our Milky Way is sort of a normal run of the mill galaxy. That's that's true. And that that is good for life. <laughs> yes. Good, good for. Well, it, what, we were just reading about an event not that long ago that said if this had been anywhere near us in the universe, it just would have sterilized everything. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Yep. Like they, there's an there's an element here of just randomness of the universe. So every so often, stuff happens that would just yeah, we're really fragile. Oh yeah, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> we, we wouldn't live for long under those conditions. Well, no. It happens randomly on our scale too. Yeah, it's true. Good lord. Um, I want to maybe jump back to this this telescope a little bit here. There was a scale model built, right? Who's the main contractor? Ball. Uh, it's Northrop Grumman is our prime contractor. Oh, okay. They, they, I think they bought Ball Aerospace way back when. Um, Ball, uh, Ball Aerospace has some part in it. So Ball is a subcontractor for okay. for us. Um, so Ball Aerospace built our mirrors. So they do ah, have a part in it. But Northrop Grumman is the prime contractor. Right. And you, so you've got these amazing sensors. You've got all the instrumentation and so forth. Now you have to get all this data back home. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's got to be, is, is, uh, the James Webb Space Telescope going to have an IP address? Can we ping it? Oh, good question. <laughs> Great question. Is there a webcam? Um, so, no. <laughs> Sorry. It'd be awesome if there was, though. Oh, man. F- billions of dollars, no webcam? Come on. That's 80 bucks at yeah. Staples. We, well, what we do have is a webcam on our website that you can go and watch it actually being built. So oh, that's up, cool. up until it's launched, you can you can see it here on Earth. <laughs> and then and then you know with as with Hubble, once the data is taken, all the data is you know free and public. And that's sure. the thing I think a lot of people don't realize about NASA's space telescopes and NASA satellites is you know they're 
obviously their their government property, right? But the data is freely available to anyone in the world. And anyone in the world, in fact, can write a proposal to Hubble, write up their great idea and say, hey, I want to do this mm. and submit the proposal. You know, it's it's truly sort of an open source um, uh, way of, of doing things, which is kind of cool. That is awesome. Well, it's like those great deep field galaxy images from Hubble. That was just a proposal from a group of scientists saying, hey, wouldn't it be neat if we pointed at this really dark spot in the yeah. universe over and over and over again for years and yep. see what we find there? Exactly. And that and that field, that particular data set is so rich. You know, there have been so many, you know, PhD theses that have come out of that, including mine. I did my research on the Hubble Ultra Deep Field oh, wow. um, no for kidding. my for my thesis work. And and you know, it's 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 there. It's online. Anyone can go download it and and look at it and study it. And it it's really a great way of doing science is making this data freely available so that you get you really just get a lot of science for the for the investment. Nice. But yeah, I, I got to think these, these images are going to be big. It's going to take a while to send them back to Earth. Well, and some of the images we've seen from Hubble were just jaw-dropping, like the Crab Nebula and the other one that you mentioned that uh, was beautiful. Uh, uh-huh. Yeah. I just you, you, These are like, you know, the things that you put on your wallpaper. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And and I think that's one of the reasons that these telescopes have been so popular with the public. You know, the images are beautiful. Um and and it's in addition to the all the the great science we learned from it, they're they're really just gorgeous images. And you know, another another cool thing is we have so many sort of defined science questions we want to answer, and that's great. You know, that's why and how we build telescopes is based on these big science questions. But you know, every time we launch a big bold telescope, like this, mm-hmm. we learn things that we'd never dreamed of, right? We we find answers to questions that we haven't even thought to ask yet. And I think that's just so cool because there are all these things out there in the universe that are sort of waiting to surprise us. And that's, that's a really fun part of doing science. Is it going to take getting observations from the JWST to really know what to build next? So... Partly, yes. I mean, we, we already sort of have some, some big ideas for what, what we, we want the next big telescope to be. Um, but, but without a doubt, Webb is going to inform, you know, how, how that, that next big step happens. Interesting, yeah. Because it doesn't seem like we have – this project's been in the works for, what, 20-something years mm-hmm. in one form or another. And it doesn't feel like we have new big projects coming down the pipe the same way. Yeah, I mean, these these big projects, it's absolutely true that, that they don't happen very often. Right. Um, of course, the, the, the bigger they are, the more expensive they are. And so, yes. you know, we can't, you know, we can't afford to do a bunch of them at once. So, um, so there's are sort of, you know, there's a, a timeline to how we build missions. Mm. Um, of course, if NASA, you know, if we had <laughs> more budget, we could build more more big things. Um, but, but we do we do what we can with what we have, you know. And, and most people, most people don't realize, you know, what the NASA budget is. You know, you you pull the public and say, what do you think the budget is? And they they're like, oh, it's ten percent, twenty percent of the federal budget. And of mm-hmm. course, it's not even close to that, right? It's less than half a percent. Yeah. Um, but with that, with that, you know, 0.4% of the national budget, you know, NASA sends astronauts to the space station and uh, does science on the space station and builds rockets to send people to Mars and does science and does astronomy and heliophysics and planetary science. And it's, you know, air and, uh, aeronautics research, right? So there's a huge portfolio of stuff that NASA does for such a, a relatively small fraction of the federal budget. So, 
I, I mean, I, I just think that's really cool. So when is the when is this thing going up? 2018. So we have about four years left until launch. Wow. And what's taking so long? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. It's yeah. a long time. <laughs> so the, since the telescope is, is so big, so complex, and just, I mean, it really is a technological revolution. You know, NASA had to invent brand new technologies, had to invent stuff in order to bid, build web. It's, it's hard to do. And since it's not serviceable, we have to get it right. Yep. And so what that means is that we have a really rigorous, extensive test program on the ground. And so, you know, we test, for example, the instruments individually, and then we put them together as a package and test them as a package. And then we test them again and put the, put, and keep building the pieces together and keep testing it every um, step of the way. Um, so we have to get it right, um, and that requires a whole lot of testing on the ground. And I, I got to think once this is up and running, like you're done. You're just going to be working from the science from this telescope for the rest of your career. It, it's absolutely possible. And, you know, I mean, ev even with, you know, Hubble has produced so much remarkable data um, that any, any astronomer could sort of, you know, take a data set and, and um, you know, make a, make a science career out of it. Mm -hmm, sure. But yeah, the, um, the data from this telescope is, I mean, I really, I really do think that it will you know, just like Hubble has done, that it's going to, to change the way we think about the universe. Well, Amber, thank you very much. This has been a, a great geek out. All right. Wish you're we welcome. had more time. There's it's some... been a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, excellent. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter van.